You're listening to Drifter Sympathy on Feral Audio. Go to feralaudio.com and click Shop Amazon to shop through their Amazon portal. Proceeds support this and other Feral Audio podcasts. After the drifter breaks the guitar in my head and I've got the 17 staples in my head. It's summertime. There's nothing left for me in Chapel Hill. I was just going to fucking die. So I'm back in my room stoned and my mom walks in. She's like, you've got to write an essay to get into college now. You have to tell this school why you want to go there. And I'm just vulnerable enough that I actually do it because I'm just trapped and wounded and stoned and just wanted to leave me alone. So I write this terrible ham-fisted essay and I accidentally get into the school and I'm super, super bummed about it. I don't want to go to college. Did you want to go to college? Yes. To get out of like your mom's house and shit? Yeah, I, I was always excited about going to college. Because you knew that's where the, the yeah, party freedom, was going to freedom, it'll be a bunch of people, I'll get laid, I can stay out as late as I want, like I'm not living at home. Why didn't you want to go to college? Like, what did you want to do instead? In high school, I remember looking at the walls of the school and thinking, like, it's kind of like prison for me. I'm just obeying other people's orders. Like digging a ditch in the, in the rain or something. It didn't seem like it was for education. I think my instinct was to get out and, like you're saying, be free and shit. So going back to school just seemed like going back into the chain gang. Okay. But, you know, you think you know everything. You think you've done it all. And, you, and your mom looks at you and thinks you haven't really gotten started and you need to, like, train your mind. And so she was right. I gave her that. I was like, okay, I'll apply to school. Fuck, I got in. But if I go, can I go up to Boston again and go see my guru, my best friend, as kind of a parting gift? You know, before I'd gone up there and I lived in a torture chamber of this extremely eccentric person's reality. And if you think of the most eccentric people you've ever known or met, when you come into their orbit, you can't determine anything about your own life or the atmosphere you're in now. You're just susceptible to their, you're in their world. If you can think of, I don't know who it would be for you, but the most intimidatingly eccentric people you've known, they just determine the flow and you have to conform to it. And it's a really intoxicating thing when you're young you know, if someone has, like, a really strong opinion when you're a kid, it just steamrolls over you. You're like, okay, you conform to that peer pressure. You want shape, and you want what the older 
cooler, wiser kid has. Right. But as you get older, you get more and more and more tired of really headstrong people pushing you around. You just want to get away from them. in the nation when it comes to rats behind New York and Houston. So he asked public health inspector John Meany. Can you make an educated guess as to how many rats we have in Boston? No, counselor, I can't. Okay. And no one, anyone that does, they shoot from the hip. He was in Boston during the hardcore movement in the 80s. He was really precocious. And so was I, but I didn't have the scene right. to be a part of. So here's like the real thing coming down from Boston into North Carolina. So he had this firsthand knowledge of hardcore, and firsthand knowledge is you can't beat it. When I first saw him, he did this flip off the stage that was frozen in time. It was a perfect 1983 hardcore punk moment except the band wasn't even playing. So there was this kind of avant-garde, like, postmodern aspect that I think I sensed. It's like, this is, this is a kid emerging from this underground cult. But now we're in the early 90s. Now we're in 1992. And I needed somebody to guide me out of it into the next thing. Luckily enough, we were both obsessed with the early Sebado recordings. And I'm talking about, like, the Manson family sounding, like, witchy, whispering, like, really disturbing shit. tiny outsider cult. It was post-hardcore moving into lo-fi because lo-fi was a hardcore movement. It was just putting down all the rock band instrumentation and seeing where it would go. If you took all the hyper-honesty of hardcore and you put the hyper-honesty into a four-track with no scene, nothing, no, no parameters, we were all trying to see how far we could take this thing. It was very exciting to me because I'm like 16. And so I convinced my mom that I get to go back up there. And the first time, if you remember, was very bizarre because he had like brought home people from his valley service that wanted to like stand on my back to take pictures for masturbating to later. He was on heroin and crack at the valet job during the day. He just had a baby. Things were really rocky with his girlfriend so when I left that time I think my major obsession was that I wasn't able to get him to record any music because I was like this is an icon of our movement this is this guy who has this whole sound that doesn't sound like anybody else this guy is like the Moses of our movement or whatever he's like cutting a swath through the fucking you know ocean and so when I decide to go back, I'm now like 
maybe a year older, and I think we've both become a little bit stranger. I get hit over the head by this drifter, have 17 staples in my head, and then go up to Boston half-wounded and enter his life again. Now he doesn't live with his girlfriend anymore who's taken the baby, and we live in this big house in this kind of rundown area of Boston, and he's working in a kennel, and he has this very intense, shitty quality of life. There's really nothing fun about it anymore. There's nothing I can uh, romanticize. He's doing heroin, but he's... Is he doing it in front of you? I think he's kind of guarding me from it. He sees me as a younger kid that had a good life, has a good family. It sounds kind of like almost like a prison concept, but he didn't want to help me get my wings. I was really enthusiastic. I just wanted to do, you know, I wanted to do what Nick Drake did. You know, I wanted to be like Nick Drake. It never once crossed my mind that Nick Drake killed himself. That's just, I think, indicative of the age is you can't perceive mortality. Yeah. I had never thought about Sid Barrett, you know, like what he became. I just thought, if only I could cut a record like Piper at the Gates. That's all I was thinking. High quality, fresh ingredients really make a meal taste great. But if you lack technical skills, it can be hard to cook for yourself. And eating out gets expensive. With Blue Apron, each meal comes with step-by-step directions, pre-portioned ingredients, and can be prepared in under 40 minutes. It's really easy to follow and make, even if you don't know a lot about cooking. For under $10 a person per meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes, working directly with farms to bring you fresh, sustainable ingredients. There's several delivery options, so you can choose what fits your needs, and there's no weekly commitment, so you only get deliveries when you want them. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash email. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash E-M-I-L. Blue Apron. A better way to cook. When he would go off to work at this kennel, he would come home, and as we're walking along, he'd kind of point out where he had thrown up that morning on the sidewalk because, you know, you'd get this delayed, nauseous effect right after you do heroin and, and he's going off to work. So he'd kind of, it was all a joke, sort of, you know. Okay. He would go and get his heroin down in a Puerto Rican laundromat where they were just dealing straight out of the laundromat. And it was a really vicious, like, gnarly scene down there. And I think there's no way I could have ever navigated any of this crazy inner city Boston-like bullshit if I hadn't have been born in Miami. It's a very similar kind of like animalistic feeling on the street. You feel like at any moment coming around a corner, 
there's a sense that someone could just stab you. There's just a sense in the air that this is a totally dangerous area. Right. But he had to go, like as we've talked about the geography of, of cities, he had to go down into this crevice of the city to get this thing that his brain told him that he needed. Sometimes I would take the train over to meet him on Tremont Street and go over to this Puerto Rican laundromat, and then behind it is like these kind of cliffs in these parks where a lot of junkies would go shoot up. And he started shooting up. I mean, I have to like really pry for this information, but he started shooting up like under these houses where they were kind of vaulted up and there was some space underneath the houses. And he was shooting up with like strangers, random homeless Puerto Rican people sharing needles. And I'm I'm like starting to perceive that this person has no sense of self-protection, no boundaries. Right. I would have thought he was an idiot if he wasn't such a genius. Now we'll watch him come out of buildings, go straight to the trash bags, rip them open, take off. And I'm talking to some other looking rats. So unless we start putting trash in rat-proof containers, these little beasts will keep getting fat in the alleys of the Athens of America. I was still in the sidecar on this adventure with him, so I wanted to see where we were going to go. And uh, he had somehow acquired an El Camino, which seems weird to me. Thinking back, I don't know how he would have even had any money at all. But when I first met him, he had been doing a job where... Back then, I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but you could drive somebody's car across the country to deliver it to them when you moved... Yes, I remember hearing. I didn't know if this was like an actual real thing that happened. Doesn't it seem very I had a mysterious? Friend who did this like on Craigslist or something. She was like, "Yeah, if I want to take a trip, I just kept someone hire me to drive their car." <laughs> take this into consideration. Okay, he couldn't drive really. Okay, yeah. So it seems really dangerous. He had a sidekick before me. This guy Dan who actually went hardcore Christian and kind of floated off into this weird world. But Heaven. Yeah, <laughs> into heaven. They were into video cameraing themselves all the time in this really, like, weird, arty kind of easy rider way. And they would be driving these cars across the country for money. I mean, they would have video of them, like, wrecking into shit and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe through that, he he somehow acquired the El Camino or maybe from the valet service. So we would kind of float along in this massive car. I mean, these two fucking freaks. And I mean, the car was not in good health. You know, we're just, these are memories of just drifting through the city in Boston and probably trying heroin for the first time and just feeling really happy. I mean, you're like 17 or something like that. And that's about it. Nothing really heavy or anything. Just an optimistic, happy sense right. that things are, are going to be okay, you know? And uh, I remember even, like, doing it in the woods 
at Harvard and coming out and like playing basketball with people at Harvard and shit as a kid. And uh, Boston was the gnarliest place in the world to me. I, it seemed worse than India somehow. It was like, it was just crack pipes on the ground every two feet. You're like crunching over them and everybody, the whole city seemed to be convulsing with a, some sort of toxin. I mean, maybe I was taking too much acid or something. What what year was this? What year? 94? Because I was out there... I did a semester of college at Berkeley, a five-week summer class, when I was 17. So this was like 97. And what I remember is I would go to so many hardcore shows in the Middle East and the downstairs, and I'd see, you know, whatever, Napalm Death or like Anal Con or In My Eyes. And people like Cleveland has like a reputation for having a violent hardcore scene. Mm-hmm. I felt like my experience in Cleveland was like a lot of people talk shit. I saw very few actual altercations. Boston was the most violent place ever to me. Like, they would have to stop shows. Every show I went there, they have to stop it three times because people just be beating the shit out of each Mm -hmm. other. And the weird part, sort of what you were saying about being 17, being that age, I was never scared. Yeah. I was always standing right outside the pit, minding my own business. People are just getting breaking their fucking noses all this stuff's happening and i'm just like cool now it's like i get nervous fucking like going into like a buy a fucking piece of pizza i'm like right. oh can i go in this place like what if i drop it yeah yeah like now it, like i can't do anything without being freaked out and then it's like literally i was just violence all around me and i was like oh this is cool but boston to me that's what i was associated with is just being just so violent and it's just being just sort of part of just the scene yeah there was no sense of optimism yeah like left there maybe i was a tourist you know that was coming through and i wanted to see the most raw demoralized version of of boston i could see i don't know i wasn't necessarily conscious of what zone i was in but maybe he was in that zone and so i just he was taking me for a guide through hell very much left behind everyone at this point. We were not on the earth, really. Did you guys have, like, other friends there you would hang out with or not really? He lived with some college kids, but when they talked I think we just, like, smiled and nodded and left or something. We were on, like, a path. He had pet rats, and he would put them in my collar so that when we took the train, the rats would be hiding down in my jacket and like you know the rats would come out and like start smelling some old lady's like coat or something and freak them out you know on the train everything does was just a joke though i went to my first peep show because i guess you could do that at 17 you know i wanted to know what goes on behind the curtain so i was like in this dirty fucked up city so i wanted to kind of wander around and see the dark side and I went into my first peep show <laughs> I call it my first peep show <laughs> like I'm 
<laughs> still every weekend get really excited. I distinctly remember going in to like a, which is like a triple X, like magazine video shop. And in the back, there was like this kind of like semicircle carousel machine thing. You know, it had like these coin slots and you would put in your coins and like a, a mechanical door would open and you would step inside this little closet and then a like mechanical door would go up and you'd just see this girl naked dancing right in front of you for the first time in your life. It's a very, very strange feeling because you perceive for the first time that she may not want to be doing this. <laughs> You've never thought about this stuff before. Like you saw Playboy magazines in the woods at your friend's fort or wherever you would hide them in the dirt or steal them from his dad or something. But you never really thought about the human experience of being a new dancer or anything. Looking through the little mechanical window at this girl who's God knows what's going on in her life, but she's not having a good day. Right. And she the eye contact is so impossible for a young kid to maintain. I mean it's just way too weird. But the the disgusting part is that you, you're very distracted because around the semicircle you can see all the men's eyes in their mechanical windows across from you and of course it's like the purpose is to jack off supposedly. And they have a little janitor that comes around with the mop after. But so you're just, I mean, there's absolutely nothing about this that would feel sexual, really. It's more about exploring the dark side. And it was, you know, you ask for it. It's just as dark as you could imagine it's going to be, you know. And so we're sort of living on this other side, you know, walking down the street on LSD in Copley Square people just look at us like like we're aliens you know like we obviously have just complete a hundred percent disregard for the rest of the world around us you know and so one day he kind of looks at me with this look and i can tell he's he's like up to no good and he's like yeah i really fucking hate my job at the kennel my boss is like this obese freak that that treats me like shit i hate him i want to kill him I don't want to go to work today. I'm this enabler. Every Everything that he wants to do, I'm going to say yes to. There's nothing, I will just do whatever he says. And I'm there on vacation, you know, to get fucked up, do whatever he's willing to show me. And so we wake up one day and he's like, I'm not going to work. Take acid. We're going to celebrate. So essentially, we're tripping, and he's already basically lost his job. So we start the day, and we get in the El Camino, and his dog jumps in the back seat. We go to get gas, but knowing him, we were probably heading out to a park. His dog jumps out of the car, which seemed really uncharacteristic, but we're tripping hard enough where you can't... You're just totally disorganized at that point. And so 
We didn't know that the dog had got in the car because we, we just weren't paying attention. It might have been after we were in the park sniffing heroin, like around Harvard, on the acid, that he looks at me and he's like, the dog, where's the dog? So by noon, we've lost his job and his dog. Neither thing ever to be seen again. For whatever reason, I remember us then going off to go smoke crack somewhere. I'm going to guess around JFK Park. I seem to remember ending up in like Harvard Square or something, drinking 40s, because you could kind of do that for some reason. That was like, you know, a scene out of kids or something. You could just go down there and get fucked up. A lot of people smoking pot. When I was down there, I remember there were a lot of, like, punks, like squatter punks or whatever. And I remember walking down the street and someone with a couple of my friends from Berkeley and this girl asking for change. And then she was like, Jonah? And it was this girl I grew up with in Ohio who was just out there fucking, like, living on the street, being a punk. And I was like, I gave her, like, whatever, some money. And I was like, hey, good to see you, blah, blah, blah. Like, she's like, child services took my kid away. I was like, oh, that's such a bummer. Wonder why. (laughs) You know what I mean? Want to get high? Yeah. I think we get in his car after drinking to take the edge off of the other five drugs we've, we've been on. Lost his job, lost his dog. Sounds like a country song. We were probably on the verge of him getting kicked out of his house. And uh, the roads in Boston are famously fucked up. They're like the worst designed highway systems in the country because they're so old. So that you have all those weird rotary systems. And they're like these crazy six lane highways that just twist into all this awkward shapes, you know? And so we somehow are crossing a six lane highway on all these drugs. And, and we're trying to get over to this rotary turn that takes us over to his friend's neighborhood. And he looks at me and he's like, no brakes. He's like, bang, bang, slamming the brake pedal. And you can see the brake pedal is just depressing into the floor with no resistance. And he's looking at me. And this is the thing is he would smile kind of. He was the kind of guy that really wanted you to suffer. And he really enjoyed forcing you to suffer as though... You needed to learn a lesson, and he'd learned that lesson, and it was time for you to kind of come to his level, you know? Maybe a sense of jealousy because he had a shitty upbringing, and I had a mom that loved me, and I was a pretty happy kid. So maybe when it was raining and we were walking five miles, he would insist that we couldn't take the bus. We just have to trudge through the rain or something, just, just unrealistic elements of suffering that he would force upon you. And so in the moment where he's slamming the brakes, he like looks over at me and he just holds his hands up and he's like, Emil, no brakes. I wouldn't say he even looked scared, you know, And I like look over at him and I see, I see that he's telling the truth, you know, 
that the car is pretty much not going to ever stop again. You know, after we lost his job and his dog, I look over to the right, six lanes of cars coming at us at full speed. It's one of those moments where, like, in a millisecond, you have one opportunity to make a little decision. And I didn't have any sort of uh, plan or anything here, but I just reached over and just spun the wheel really hard. And the car somehow, you know, because the roads are so fucked up, the car just turns as hard as it can as the cars are all coming right up to us. And a magical, tiny little exit road just appears and we just like drift down it, you know? And that's the way those roads are kind of designed. They just make no sense. And he looks at me and he's like, You saved our life, man! I mean, I was probably like just more proud now instead of relieved because he liked, he liked me again. You know, he wasn't mad at me in those moments. He would, he would just rebound very quickly. And he, and he was like, he made it all a joke. So we basically pull the car into, into town and just drive it straight into a brick wall because it won't stop. And bam, El Camino hits the wall. We get out. We've got a guitar in the trunk, so we're kind of playing, picking guitar on the on the trunk. I mean, how fast are you going when you hit this wall? I mean, I don't think we were demolition derbying. Yeah. I don't. I think we basically just wanted the car to stop, right? And we wanted to go home at that point. And so, I mean, we'd done the maximum amount of damage we could to his life. We just kind of rolled out of the car and like thought it was pretty funny. I don't I don't remember any sense that we almost just died. Or that like it was a bummer to leave the car or anything. I think he was upset about the dog. I think that was the thing that he cared yeah. about. And he was probably glad he didn't have a job anymore. For news all day and talk all night, stay with WBZ Radio. Now, here's WBZ's Bob Raleigh. Good morning. It's great. Stay up late. Good morning. Good morning to you and you and you and you. Can you speak up a little bit louder, please? Oh, you can't hear me? Well, I can hear you now. All right. I wanted to call you to get the word out about my lost dogs. Don't do lost dogs. Thank you very much. Connie's and Everin, bada bing. Bada bing. Thank you. Sorry about the dog, but we don't do them. Yes. Well, we don't. You know, we just don't do... If we did Lost Dogs, my God, with the signal that we have, we'd be doing Lost Dogs in Toledo, Ohio, and in Florida. Exactly. Backbeat, bloody conviction. Power sludge storm sucking down.
I think I was starting to hear something internally starting to hear what I think was going to be the sound of my music instead of his walking through the inner city of Boston on acid and just hearing like a particular frequency rhythmically pulsing I thought of college as a place where I could kind of hibernate I was going to be up in the mountains of North Carolina so it was going to be a place that I could put myself back together I was going to tape myself back together and try to learn how to live again. As I hit the ground at, at school, I think instead of paying attention to my, my guru buddy's self-destruction, I didn't have that to distract me anymore. And I think I fully caved in in self-consciousness. I had a lot of trouble just doing anything. I met a small group of people that ended up kind of changing my life. One of them was Duncan. And one of the other main characters from this period was this other guy that they had tried to kick out of the school. They, and they basically tried to kick me out of the school, too. Because they found, like, an 18-inch purple bong in my room, which was actually not mine. I couldn't have afforded it. But they blamed it on me surgically to get rid of me and issued like a school-wide memo about me having this paraphernalia. And I had to go in front of this board and my mom had to come out to the school. Are you serious? It was a really big mess. I think they just really wanted to get rid of me. And I think they had put a target on me. I didn't appear to anyone to be someone who would last in any situation, any job, any any school, anyway. So I think I just gave off an expendable vibe. And so somehow they fit me with the what they consider to be the worst person on campus that no one would live with. No one would fucking come near this guy. So I'm about 18 now, and the, this guy they room me with is 28. He's like 10 years older than the rest of the campus. And he is a true backwoods drug casualty metalhead, basically. They called him Crazy Jeff. I immediately fell in love with this guy. We became roommates and we protected each other and, and stood by each other. But at first, you know, I'd heard the stories of how he comes into the room at five in the morning and turns on Slayer to like 10 and starts flexing in the mirror and like speaking in kind of like a, he becomes like a beast. He becomes like an animal when he gets fucked up. He clearly had a, what you would call an unhealthy relationship to drugs. <laughs> he, and when he started drinking, which he did every day and he'd already had doctors telling him his liver was going to fail when he started drinking, he transformed and he didn't go back. He just cruised like a fucking train into this really ecstatically fucked up place. And it was really charming to be around. It was fucking hilarious. He was also really small, so I could actually pick him up and kind of like throw him across the room and shit. I mean, he's a cartoon character. This guy was fucking awesome. Although the school tried to pair me up with the worst element of the of the student body, they put together the two ultimate 
misfits and we had a world in our dorm room i mean people would come over and just marvel at the state of our lives you know duncan was kind of living across campus in these new dorms that they set up that were like very modern and extremely nice almost like a real world house on MTV. Okay. I lived in like the seventies dorm that was still kind of moldy and weird. We both had a, uh, an addiction to the Funhouse pinball game down underneath the cafeteria. You could kind of drift in later at night. He said that he would see me like leering over by the uh, Funhouse pinball machine with like, you know, fists of whiskey and just kind of glaring at him. He would invite me over to go to Hare Krishna meetings and we would all sit down and get into these grand philosophical debates, which was like a new thing for me to actually use my brain again and slowly being around Duncan as opposed to getting fucked up with all these kind of like hippie jock deadhead dudes. Slowly as I hung out with Duncan, I realized that there was a time as a kid that I actually liked to learn things and I actually liked to read and use philosophy as a device. And so being around Duncan convinced me that there was a way to live that was a happier path where you used your brain for constructive means, you know, instead of just trying to destroy it, which was like this slope that I had slid down, not really on purpose. It's just, I didn't see anything interesting going on in 1995. To me, the beginning of the nineties had ended and all the good things that I saw that were exploding out of the eighties were largely like commodified and met at death or abandoned in the name of commercialization. The underground, to me, had died. That was the way I saw it. I know for other kids, it was probably just heating up, but my world wasn't about underground music as a farm team for success and money and all the things that the second half of the 90s were really about. I felt like the dream was largely over. So moving up into the mountains, leaving the rest of the world and living in the Blue Ridge Parkway as a retreat made a lot of sense. It wasn't that I wanted to do it, but there wasn't anything left in the fucking world in my in my mind, you know. The school only had 700 people, so we're up on this hippie farm taking drugs. In a weird way, meeting Duncan like convinced me that maybe I really could rebuild myself. Maybe I could actually clean up this mess slowly get my mind to work again wean myself off of these ideas of of having to be fucked up all the time and become this new version of myself so he essentially totally changed my life He would walk in my room and day after day it was just pitch black. Dazed in a sense of complete purposelessness. I think he was just fascinated that I was even making it through day to day stuff. 
Why do you think you were so sad? I think that my brain's chemistry was going through a really massive roller coaster. It seemed very clear that my serotonin or whatever I was doing to my brain chemistry with drugs, whatever happiness chemicals you can generate within your brain had been completely depleted. Like, like there was no ability to enjoy anything in life anymore. And I just existed on this very low, low amount of energy, barely able to get through the day. True purposelessness is like, it's beyond the death of the ego. It's, it's that other place where you wouldn't want anything from this world anyway. Like you just don't desire anything and you don't know why, but you've kind of left the script. Trample down. Upon me, you gotta wonder why. Take it all just because I let you. surrounded myself I could surrounded myself Everybody said Everybody is Thank you. 
Sun's song called Trampled Down off of the record Fall of Man on Thrill Jockey Records. (laughs) 